going to uh, continue today in our series of messages that I began to take us through the book of 1 John. And if you weren't with us before or maybe you missed one of those previous sermons, I'm going to begin with just a brief recap of what we covered in the first chapter as we're going to be covering chapter 2 today. The book of 1 John was written by the Apostle John to a group of Christians in an area called Asia Minor. And Asia Minor in that time is what is now encompassed by the country of Turkey. So if you think about your world geography, the country of Turkey is that area of Asia Minor. John was writing to these fellow brothers and sisters because he had gotten wind that there were some dangerous false teachings and some very dangerous false teachers that were causing fractures amongst the members of the churches there. In the opening chapter of 1 John, we saw that John immediately covered the topic of Jesus being both fully God and fully man. We also saw John repeatedly verify his credibility as an eyewitness to the life and the ministry of Jesus. And in verse 3 of chapter 1, we learn that at the heart of the Christian faith is fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. We also saw John attack the notion that there were different types or different flavors of Christianity. We read that there's no such thing as theoretical Christians or people who, serve, who are Christians in theory but not Christians in practice. We also read that there's no such thing as perfect Christians or people who are now perfect like Jesus and have no need for spiritual growth or confession or repentance. And finally, we learned that there's no such thing as exempt Christians or people who were without sin and therefore did not need to be saved by the atoning work of Jesus. And now as we turn the page to chapter 2 of 1 John, what we're going to find is even more clarifications. John's going to go to great lengths to ensure that the readers of this letter walk away with a proper understanding and an accurate portrait of who Jesus is. Is So if you'll open with me to 1 John chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And as our usual practice, I'm going to be reading out of the English Standard Version, or what we refer to as the ESV. And that passage will also be up here on the screens to my right and left, if you would like to follow along with me up there. The Word of God reads... My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray together this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. And we praise you for all that you have done for us. We thank you for this day that we have to join together as the body of believers, to to worship you, to hear from you through the pages of Scripture. 
I ask that you would guide my lips to proclaim only what you have proclaimed. Open our ears and our hearts so that we would receive and take in only what you want us to know. And Father, I pray that you would touch our hearts, that you would lead us to live lives that testify to your gospel, that would open up relationships with others so that we might share your good news with them. In all things, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified. And I ask all this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. My goal for us today is to break down our passage of Scripture into four key points. And each point is going to show us a quality or a truth about Jesus that John wanted his readers to know. And the first point, which I think stands out pretty easily, is that in Jesus, we have a great advocate. Jesus is our advocate. Let's look together again at at verse 1. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And then the advocate he's referring to here is Jesus Christ, the righteous. So in what way is Jesus our advocate? What I found is that commentators and theologians, they kind of oscillate between two different possibilities. And and while no one is willing to say that that one opinion is is more correct than the others, I think the, the best thing that we can do is understand both possibilities, and that will give us a uh, more rounded and a better informed understanding of the advocacy of Jesus. The first sense in which Jesus is our advocate is actually rooted in the legal system. I want to take you back now. How many of you, by show of hands, can go back to 1994-95, and you remember the trial of former NFL uh, running back O.J. Simpson? Who remembers that? That was a pretty uh, important event in our country's history. It's amazing to think that that is now over 25 years ago. I think most of you, like me, can even remember many of the names of a lot of the witnesses and a lot of the lawyers who participated in that case. And, and one of the lawyers who I believe became the most notable after this case was a man named Johnny Cochran. You guys remember Johnny Cochran? Johnny Cochran was the defense, one of the defense attorneys for O.J. Simpson. And the job of Johnny Cochran was to create reasonable doubt as to whether his client, O.J. Simpson, was guilty of committing the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. Now, this trial lasted an entire, almost an entire calendar year from the end of 94 through to the end of 1995. And it was filled with many memorable moments. And in one of those moments, as we see in the, the picture here, was this scene where O.J. Simpson was asked to put on these, these gloves that had been found at the, the crime scene, these uh, gloves that were supposed to belong to the killer. And, and O.J. sat there and he struggled to put those, those gloves on. And eventually he kind of got them on and he, he held his hands up like this in, in front of the jury. And if you remember in his closing dialogue, Johnny Cochran said this memorable phrase. You probably remember it when I bring it to your attention. He said, if it doesn't fit, you what? You must acquit, right? You see, Johnny Cochran wasn't so much concerned about justice, I don't believe. I I don't think that he cared if O.J. Simpson was truly guilty or not. His main priority, the thing that he was most concerned with, was keeping O.J. Simpson out of prison. 
And he and his team did such a good job that we know that O.J. Simpson was acquitted in that trial. Now, as his defense attorney, Johnny Cochran served as a legal advocate for O.J. Simpson. And this is important because in a similar fashion, Jesus also serves as our defense attorney. But there are a couple of very, very important distinctions and differences that we need to make note of. And the the first difference is that in God's court of law, there's no doubt as to whether we are guilty of our rebellion and our treason. God already knows the answer to that. We are guilty of all those charges. So the role that Jesus fulfills as our defense attorney is not to create reasonable doubt as to whether we are sinners or not. You see, we're way past that point. Instead, the role of Jesus is to show God that the punishment that we have earned for our sin and for our rebellion, that punishment, that sentence has already been served. The justice for our crimes has already been handed out. Jesus advocates for us before the Father by testifying on our behalf that the punishment that we earned has been served and satisfied through Christ's sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. You see, Jesus needs no lawyer gimmicks. He needs no catchy slogans or sayings. He doesn't need gloves that don't seem to fit us when we try to put them on. All he needs to say is that this is one that you have given me and their debt that they owe for their crimes has been satisfied and their record is now wiped clean. You see, Jesus is the greatest defense attorney in the history of all creation because he is undefeated. Anyone who places their faith and trust in him will not be found guilty and they will never be sentenced to judgment for their sin. What the word of God tells us is that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, our debt has been paid and the record of our sin has been washed away by his blood. And I don't know about you guys, but that's exactly the type of advocate that I want in my corner. And that's exactly the type of advocate that we have in Christ Jesus. Amazingly, though, there is a, another way in which Christ advocates for us. And, and in this way, we need to look at things in a more non-legal sense. Here's the best way that I can try to explain this for us. From time to time, I get asked to be a reference for a uh, friend or colleague on, a, on an application. Sometimes it's for a, a job. Sometimes it's for a, a school. How many of you guys are, are familiar with that? How many of you have ever been asked to be a reference or you've had to ask someone to be a reference for you? That should be something that we're all pretty familiar with. This is the the premise of a reference. You see, the applicant believes that you think so highly of them that you will advocate for them to get that new job or to get into that new school. But there's there's another component to this process. It's that the applicant also thinks so highly of you that they believe your recommendation would carry a lot of weight toward them getting that job or getting into that school. You see, Most applicants don't put unsuccessful people as references on their resumes. Why not? Well, it's because unsuccessful people, because of their lack of success or maybe their lack of character, those people have an opinion that might be considered weak. Their opinion would carry very little weight or authority. But now think about this for a moment. What if Jesus is our reference? What if he is the one sponsoring us and the one endorsing us 
before God. That would mean that we would automatically gain favor and acceptance from our Heavenly Father. And that favor and that acceptance is not given based on our history of success or or based on our faithfulness and our trustworthiness, but because of the spotless record and the perfect faithfulness of the one who advocates for us. Jesus is the sponsor that tops all other sponsors. He is the reference that trumps all other references because his advocacy of us carries the weight of his character and his perfection. Does that make sense? To everyone. If Jesus stands before the Father and says, This person has my endorsement, then that's all that needs to be said. If Jesus is for us, then truly in this sense, no one can be against us. So as we turn our attention back to 1 John, when John says that in Jesus, who is righteous, we have an advocate, it means that we have someone who sponsors us before the Father, and we have someone who defends us before the Father. And because of that advocacy of Christ, the judgment of God will always fall in favor of whomever Jesus defends. In Christ, we are reconciled to God the Father. And because Jesus is our advocate, our sins, even those that we commit after coming to faith in Christ, will not change the judgment of God from being in our favor. Christ advocates for us, not because we are worthy or because we are good but because he is worthy and because he is good. And those who follow Christ as Lord and Savior, the penalty for their sin has been paid and the record of their sin has been completely wiped clean. And this kind of leads us into now a a natural transition into our second point this morning, which is that Jesus is our propitiation. Look at verse 2 with me again for a moment. He is the propitiation for our sins, And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, the the word propitiation is not one that we use or we come across very often in modern language, is it? In fact, if it weren't for being listed on the pages of Scripture, propitiation may not be a term that we ever come across in our lives. But since it is found in the Bible, since it is a description of, of Jesus, then coming to understand this term should be a top priority. What does John mean when he says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins? Well, much like the term advocate, the term propitiation is one that has depth. It doesn't just mean one thing and and one thing only, but if we wanted to get another well-rounded understanding of the term, I, I think we could best summarize it like this. Jesus, as the propitiation for our sins, is the means by which our sin is forgiven and by which the wrath of God is satisfied. Let me read it again for you. Jesus is the means or the way or the instrument by which our sin is forgiven and by which the wrath of God is satisfied. Let me try to bring this concept in a little bit closer to us in our our modern context. What I'd like for you to do is I'd like for you to close your eyes for a moment and I'd like for you to go back in time to maybe when you were 10 or 11 or 12 years old. I want you to go back to school, to lunch. Maybe you were able to sit around a lunch table with some friends 
And I want you to imagine that uh, the friend across the table from you, you look at their lunch and you see their dessert, and they have a nice, fresh Rice Krispie treat. Okay? And then your friend immediately locks eyes with you and looks at your lunch, and they see that you have a Twinkie. And you're thinking to yourself, man, I sure would like that Rice Krispie treat. And your friend is thinking, man, I'd really like that Twinkie. So now what are you going to do? Right? That's right. You're going you're gonna to make a little deal here. You're going to come up with a trade. So you go ahead and, and you can open your eyes now. You can go ahead and trade. And now we've had this two-way transaction take place. And now both of us are happier. Both of us are in a, a better place. Everybody's good because I got what I wanted. They got what they wanted. Everybody is happy. Now, if we look at Christ as the propitiation for our sins, it is also a two-way transaction between two parties. You see, Jesus takes something from us and we receive something from him. But unlike my little analogy about trading desserts, Jesus is never in a position of want or lack. You see, Jesus doesn't need anything from us that we could give him. In fact, the trade that we're going to see happen, taking place between Jesus and us, greatly benefits us. You see, before making Christ our Lord and Savior, we are the ones who are in serious need. We have a record of sin and unrighteousness that has to be appropriately punished. And since God is a just God and one who must maintain his perfect justice, God must exercise his righteous wrath against our unrighteous sin. In fact, there's absolutely positively no other way around that fact. And if God were to leave sin unpunished, that would violate his justice and his righteousness, and we know that that's not going to happen. But unfortunately, it turns out that our record of sin is not our only issue. You see, we not only possess a a rap sheet full of sin and rebellion, but we also have a record of obedience and righteousness that is woefully lacking. In fact, if we were to look at the good works that we accomplished before we came to know Christ— That list would be blank. Entrance into God's kingdom requires a standard of righteousness and a standard of obedience that's well out of reach for any single one of us. But it wasn't out of reach for Jesus. So here we stand, right? We have an account full of sins and we have a a record empty of righteousness And without some incredible intervention, the outlook for us is bleak. But God, in his great mercy, has offered an incredible trade. By repenting of our sin and placing our faith in his son Jesus, we can give our record, our account, our collection of sins, we can give that over to Jesus. And in Christ, the punishment that he endured on the cross would perfectly and appropriately satisfy the wrath of God. Of God. We call this transaction or this movement in one direction imputation. It's just another big theological word. It means that our sin would be placed upon or imputed to Christ so that his death on the cross would be substituted for the death that we deserve. And that puts us in a much better position, doesn't it? But incredibly, that's not all. That's not the only part of the exchange. 
just like our dessert analogy, as our sin goes one way toward the cross of Calvary, something's going to come the other way, the other direction toward us. And that is the the record of perfect righteousness and perfect obedience that Jesus accomplished during his 33 years here on earth. So now, now when God looks to see the good works that we've accomplished, when he looks to see how well we loved others, how obedient we were to his word, he won't see our failures. He won't see our wrong motives, and he won't see where we ignored what he wanted and did instead what we wanted. But when he looks at our record, what he will see instead is only what Christ did. And he's going to give us the credit for it as if we did those things ourselves. This two-way transaction which places our sin onto the cross and transfers Christ's righteousness to us. This is the means by which we are forgiven of our sin. It is the means by which the wrath of God is satisfied. And that's what John was talking about here when he says that Jesus is our propitiation. By repenting of our sin, placing our faith in Jesus, we are the recipients of the most advantageous trade of all time. Our sin and our punishment in exchange for his perfect obedience. And I don't know how it could possibly get any better than that. But we got to check this out. Look at the end of verse 2. John says, Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that everyone eventually receives forgiveness? Does it mean that at the end, no one has to go to hell, regardless of whether they believed in Jesus or not, because God is so loving and God is so forgiving that he's just going to save everyone? Well, no, that's not what John is telling his readers. What he is telling them, though, is that the blood of Christ and the offer of salvation through faith and faith alone is available to anyone and to everyone. There is no nation, no tribe, no people group who are excluded from salvation by grace. No one is beyond the scope. No single person has so much sin that he or she could not receive forgiveness through Christ. The offer, we can say, is universal. It goes out to everyone who has the opportunity to hear the proclamation of the gospel. But the application of salvation is limited to those who follow Christ. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. It's very inclusive and exclusive to those who aren't following him. He says, no one comes to the Father but by me. In the end, there are only two groups of people. There are those who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus for forgiveness. And there are those who reject Jesus, who will spend their eternity facing the wrath of God for their iniquity. You see, brothers and sisters, without Jesus, we pay the price. Without Jesus, we get what we deserve. But when Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, he is the propitiation for your sin. He is the means by which your sin is forgiven and by which the wrath of God is satisfied. The trade of our sins for Christ's righteousness is the greatest and the most glorious exchange that we could ever receive. But this now begins to beg another question, which is this. How do we know? How can we know for a fact that we have become the beneficiaries of this 
trade? How do we know that Jesus has become personally our propitiation? And that leads us to point three in our message today, which is Jesus is our Lord. If you'll turn again with me to verses three through the first half of verse five, John says this, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And we'll stop right there for just a moment. Now, John assumes that his audience is going to have the very same questions that we have. How do we know that we truly know Jesus? How do we know that he is currently and eternally serving as our advocate? How do we know that he is the propitiation for our sin? And amazingly, the answer to this question is far more simple than the question itself. John says, if you want to know how to know that you are saved, then all you have to do is simply look at the evidence. I have a a four-year-old niece, and she came to our house earlier this year, and and as she was at our house, she was going through a, a toy box and she found a, a magic wand. We don't even know where it came from, uh, but it was in this box of old toys. And, and she got it and she was so excited to play with this magic wand. There were lights on it. There were sparkles. There were even holes for a little speaker where it would make noises. And, and, and Dana can tell you, she was giddy. Our niece was giddy about this toy. She was so excited to play with it. And as she began to play with it, her smile quickly faded because she kept pressing the buttons and nothing would happen. The lights wouldn't light up and there were no sounds coming from the speakers. For her, this magic wand was now simply a stick. There was no magic in it at all. Her imagination was ready to play with this dynamic, inspiring toy, but what she got instead, it didn't match up to the hype. Now you probably figured out what I figured out, which is that the batteries were dead. The toy had been sitting in the toy box for so long that the batteries were gone. And and if the batteries are dead, then the toy gives no evidence of life. It gives no evidence of the potential that it has to shine and to make noises. But when those batteries are changed and something fresh and full of life is put into that wand, well, then the game changes, doesn't it? The wand comes to represent the power of what is inside of it. And much like this little toy, our lives give evidence as to what is inside of us. If Jesus is our advocate, if he is our propitiation, it is because Jesus has first become our Lord. That means that we desire to serve him. We are under his control and his authority. We are subservient to him alone and we support what he supports and we reject what he rejects. John says, and I'm paraphrasing, you want to know how to know that you've become a follower of Jesus? Then ask yourself this, do you keep his commandments? Now, lest we fall into the trap of legalism here and assume that saved people never sin, or that Christians are supposed to be perfect people. We sufficiently disproved that theory two weeks ago. But I want you to notice that there's one particular word that pops up 
in each of these three verses, verses 3, 4, and 5, we're going to see the same word. And that word is a verb, and that verb is to keep. Now, in the uh, original Greek language, the word is tereo. And I've, I've put it up here for you. I don't expect you to be able to read it, but I put it phonetically so you can see. The, the word is tereo. And Dr. Danny Aiken, who's the uh, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote a book on uh, the book of 1 John. And in his book, he reminds us that the word tereo gives the sense of guarding something, of keeping watch over something, of holding something close that is of great importance. And this is critical for us to understand because what, this is what John is referring to when he says keep his commandments. It's not a blind, cold, rigid obedience to the commands of Christ. But instead it speaks of treasuring and guarding his commandments. Not because we have to, but because we want to. When I was a kid, I collected baseball cards and football cards. And while I didn't own any cards that were of much monetary value, I did own and I actually still own a number of cards that were extremely valuable to me. And because these cards were important to me, I had different types of protective cases that I could store these cards in that would help keep them safe and in good condition. In fact, there were three different types of cases that I used. The first was just a a protective sleeve, almost like a Ziploc bag. And it was exactly the size of one baseball card. And I could slide that card into the sleeve. And it offered some protection, right? It was better than nothing, but it wasn't great. The second case that I used was made of a harder plastic. In fact, it's just like this one. Similar to what you see in the picture there. And it did a much better job at keeping the card protected. You see, as long as the card stays in this case and it doesn't go sliding out of the top or nothing gets into the case, this card's going to stay in pretty good shape. I had some of my best cards in cases just like that. But the final type of protective case consisted of two plastic plates. They were harder and even thicker plastic And they came with four little screws, and you would screw a screw into each corner of the case. You'd slide the card in between those plates, and then you'd you'd tighten those screws, and you would secure it between those plates. And it's actually just like this one. Now, this type of case, if you were to buy this case, the case itself cost a couple dollars. It was probably worth more than the card I put in there. But as a a 10-year-old kid with very little money, this case was reserved for my my very best, my most prized possession. The case uh, held the one card that I wanted to protect the most. It had the absolute highest value to me personally. So I did everything that I could at that time to treat it as such. And ultimately, I think that's John's point is that you can tell how, how valuable something is to you by what links you are willing to guard it and protect it and keep it. You see, if I didn't put a card in a case and I just threw it into a pile with all the other non-important cards in my collection, then it, it showed that I really didn't treasure that card. And I didn't consider it to be all that valuable to me. But it is our lives that will ultimately demonstrate this exact same truth about Christ and his commandments to us. We guard and we keep what we treasure. 
And if we are recipients of God's grace and we've made that trade of of our sins for the, the righteousness of Christ, the implications of that great exchange mean that Jesus isn't just our Savior, but he is also the Lord of our life. And if Jesus is our Lord, then we should desire nothing more than to serve him, to obey him and to please him. And we demonstrate our allegiance to and our love for Christ by guarding his commandments, by doing everything that we possibly can to prevent our lives from offending God and from disobeying his law. If we were to boil it all down to its purest form, we could say that the evidence of a true, regenerative, internal salvation is most clearly validated by our desire to keep Christ's commandments. That's why John is confident enough to say that if someone were to say, I know him, but yet that person doesn't demonstrate a desire and a practice of obeying Christ, then John would say that that person is a liar. Their outward actions show that their statement is false and that they don't know Christ at all. But for those who do obey Christ and who keep his commandments and who value what he values... Those people show that the love of God is perfected in them. We value and we treasure what we serve, and we're either serving Christ or we're serving the world. And this brings us to our fourth and final point of our message, which is that Christ is our example. We last left off in our text in the middle of verse 5. So it's there that I want to pick back up and continue reading. John writes, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Again, John is pointing out some external things that someone can look for to determine if they truly know Christ as their Lord and Savior. If they are abiding or remaining in him and if they are following his commands. This time, however, John uses a a common phrase or a figure of speech, one that we see often in the New Testament. In fact, he already used this same word in chapter 1, and that figure of speech is a verb, and again, it's to walk. What what, What is John talking about when he says that we ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked? Well, to try and answer that question, I'm again going to take you back to the mid-90s, okay? This, it's like a time warp. We're going, going back in time today. And in 1994, ironically the same year that the O.J. Simpson trial was happening, in 1994, a new television show debuted, and this show went on to be a hit for 10 seasons, 10 years, and that show was called Friends. How many of you watched Friends any time between the, the mid-90s and the mid-2000s? Now, one of the characters of the show, her name was Rachel, and Rachel was played by an actress named Jennifer Aniston. And as the show Friends was gaining in popularity about two seasons in, Jennifer Aniston's character, Rachel, showed off this brand new hairstyle. In fact, this this hairstyle is called the Rachel. And almost overnight, women across the country and likely across the world they began, to ch- they began to change their hairstyles so they could look more like Rachel. Anybody out there willing today to admit that you tried the Rachel haircut? In- <laughs> Figures, Matt. All right, how about this? Have you ever styled your hair 
or maybe you wore a certain type of clothing or, or maybe you acted in a certain way to mimic a TV character or a movie character or even a famous celebrity. Now I, believe it or not, back when I had hair in college, I grew my hair out pretty long. And once it got long enough, I went to have it cut because I wanted to look just like the lead singer of my favorite band. Unfortunately, the style looked far better on him than it did on me. But the point still stands, which is this, that we as human beings, we mimic what we find attractive and desirable. We try to take on the characteristics and the qualities of the people or the things that that we like or that we admire. And we often do this physically or externally, but sometimes we also do it with our words and with our personalities. I want you to think back to who has had the biggest influence on your life. Who influenced the way that you dress? Who influenced the way that you talk? Who influenced what kind of car you drive? It's very rare that we come up with our own unique styles and ideas. We spend a lot of time mimicking others that we admire. I'll even go so far as to say that there are certain preachers that have had a large influence on how I preach. I have adopted some of their aspects of their style and their approach. And while I admire Pastor Virgil greatly, he and I are very different, aren't we? And modeling yourself after someone isn't necessarily a a bad thing. As long as the person that you're modeling yourself after is modeling themselves after Christ. We see this a lot in the letters of the Apostle Paul. He often tells his readers to imitate him in as much as he is imitating Jesus. And that's very similar to what John is alluding to here in 1 John. Now, in the the previous verses, verses 3, 4, and the first part of verse 5, we saw that we are to keep the commandments of Christ. And if God had simply handed down to us his commandments, much like he did in the Old Testament, written down on stone tablets for us to follow, then John's instructions still wouldn't change. God is God, and, and what he calls us to do is what we should do. But God is gracious, and he's merciful. And he's loving, isn't he? And in his son Jesus, whom we come to know through the pages of God's word, we not only have a record of the commands that God has called us to obey, but we also have the perfect example of love and obedience to imitate. You see, Christ is the very best example. He teaches us how to pray. He showed us how to love and to be compassionate. He models for us patience and grace and forgiveness, and he even demonstrates righteous anger and godly conviction. In Jesus, we have the perfect representation of who we are called to be. And as his followers, we must desire to mimic Jesus. We must desire to live as Jesus lived. We must desire to obey as Jesus obeyed. And we must desire to model the sacrificial love that Jesus modeled. That's what it means to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. How do we know that we abide or we remain in Christ? You'll see your life and your words and your actions increasingly increasingly look more and more like his. I think it's sad 
Because the world looks at the Bible as a cold and outdated set of rules put forth by power-hungry church leaders to prevent them from having fun, right? Like, let's just call it what it is. That's how the world sees the Bible. For them, it is a relic, and it has failed to evolve to fit today's modern culture. But what they fail to see and what God has been so gracious to show us, his children, is that, yes, while there are rules, there are commands, there are principles that we are to follow, There's something so much more than that in God's word. There's Jesus. God in human flesh who defends us as our advocate, who forgives us as our propitiation, who guides us as our Lord, who came to this earth, who walked on the dirt, who shed his own blood so that he could be the perfect example that we look to. If we know this Jesus, if we love this Jesus, if we have been forgiven and saved by this Jesus, then his life must be the one that we look to imitate. His walk must be the walk that we seek to replicate. So I'll say it again. How do you know that you abide or remain in Christ? The answer is because your life begins to look more and more like his. We must not neglect this aspect of our salvation and our sanctification because, brothers and sisters, there is a great enemy that prowls around. And one of his greatest strategies is to convince us that Jesus can be whoever we want him to be. But we know the truth, don't we? We know that only God's word can tell us who Jesus is. And as the full weight of this passage and this message and and the size of the task that lies before us, as it convicts our hearts, as it comforts our souls, we're left with a longing to respond to Jesus in some way. And as I considered about how to apply this message and, and what I could possibly say about all who Jesus is, I kept coming back to this one idea. The obedience of Christ that we are called to practice. The way of life that Scripture compels us and commands us to live, it cannot possibly be a solo pursuit. Keeping the commands of Christ and walking as Jesus walked, is, it isn't best accomplished apart from the body of Christ. It's best accomplished within the body of Christ, within the church, surrounded by the love and support of our brothers and sisters. In fact, I think we could go so far as to say that our growth in Christ is much like one of the the moving sidewalks at the airport. You guys ever been on one of these? Okay, if if you haven't been to an airport in a while, it's much like an escalator, except it's flat. It just goes flat across the ground. And if you're trying to become more like Jesus on your own, it's like you're stepping onto the moving sidewalk and standing still. What happens if you step onto a moving sidewalk and you stand still? Well, you move, you go, but you just go really slowly. You don't go very far, very fast. But sharing your walk with others, joining a small group for discipleship, making your spiritual growth a team event is like now starting to walk on that moving sidewalk. And you know what happens when you begin to walk on a moving sidewalk? Even if you just walk at a normal pace, You're now moving twice as fast as the people who aren't on the sidewalk at all. This is what discipleship does. 
God has given us two incredible gifts to help aid us in our growth in Christ. The first is his Holy Spirit that dwells within us and supernaturally works to conform us more and more to the image of Christ. But the second gift that he has given us is gifted teachers, gifted prayer warriors, gifted servants, gifted brothers and sisters who love us and who are there to hold us accountable when we fall, who are there to encourage us when we are discouraged, and who are there to celebrate with us when we grow. So here's my challenge for you this week. As you think about all of who Jesus is, I want you to actively take note of any person or any activity that is intentionally and systematically helping you to become more like Jesus. Who's discipling you? Who is challenging you? Who is teaching you the commands of Christ? And how often is that discipleship occurring? My suspicion is that when you come back here next week, you will have found one of two primary possibilities. One possibility is that you have found that there's no one discipling you. Or the other possibility is that you found that it's your small group, your Sunday school class, your group here at church that is your primary source of discipleship. And if Sunday school is where your discipling is occurring, then as your discipleship pastor, that's really encouraging to me. I'm glad that you're plugged in and you're involved in that class. My challenge to you, though, is this. How do you take it up a notch? What can you do to become a more sacrificial and more serving part of your small group? What can you do to better prepare for the lesson and the discussion? You see, the rate at which you grow is largely dependent on how willing you are to lay down all the things that you have made a priority over your personal discipleship. For those of you who find that you have no sources of regular discipleship, I want to challenge you to come here next Sunday. 9.45 is when our Sunday school classes start. I'd love for you to join one of our classes. You see, Sunday school is how we accomplish part of the great commission of teaching others all that Jesus has commanded. So come get involved. Come and see how one small step, surrounded by your brothers and sisters in Christ, can help you grow at a rate of speed that you never thought possible. For those who are watching online, and and maybe you're homebound, maybe you're physically unable to join us here at church, We also have a way to join online Wednesday night for our prayer and for our Bible study. What we're trying to do is, as a church, we want to remove all the barriers that could prevent us from growing in Christ. And that's exactly what John's letter was meant to do, to remove the barriers for those Christians in Asia Minor so that they could continue to grow. You see, we're all called to become more and more like Jesus. We just weren't called to do it alone.